Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, and this is almost like a special edition of the Week in Sports Cars. It's spinning yarns, it's talking about sports cars, but it doesn't have my usual co-host, Graham Goodwin. You won't hear an English accent on this one. You're going to hear two American accents, and if you are a somewhat longtime listener to the podcast, you might remember a, a series that... We did with our dear friend, race engineer without any, any peers, Uh, someone who I just love and uh, (laughs) cherish, who has just an incredible career and incredible stories to tell. That being Jeff Brown. How are you, my brother? I am doing fantastic. I am uh, always a pleasure to talk racing and you know, tell stories, whether they're entirely true. I, I, I try to make them as true as possible, but sometimes uh, yeah, I've been doing this a long time and my memory fails me, but it's always great talking race cars with you, Marshall. And, you know, as busy as you are, I appreciate you uh, fitting me in no. and me come and talk a little bit. You stop being silly there, Jeff. And we're going to try <laughs> and we're going to, we're going to build in uh, as much truthiness as we can. Um, <laughs> so we have, the 100th anniversary of the first running of the 24 hours of Le Mans, the centenary. We're recording this Wednesday night, May 31st. I'm hopping on a bird to fly over to France in the morning. So we'll run this at some point in time in the, in the run up to the race, knowing that you have some really cool history at Le Mans since honestly, Jeff, this year's running is just so steeped in history. I thought, who better to just join us? And I know you, you've picked 1996, your first year running yep. cars at Le Mans. In the mid-90s, <laughs> you were a man who never said no to uh, captain of industry, Andy Evans. You were looking after full-time, full-season, uh, what we would call today IMSA, uh, program GTP type stuff back then, world sports cars as they were known, Ferraris. You were running Indy cars. You were running a dragster. Uh, there was yep. all kinds of stuff. And I realized some years during the Team Scandia evolution, you did more of one thing, less of others. But you had many things to do already at home in good old <laughs> US of A. But hey, there's this pretty amazing race in France coming off a championship, right? 1995. So let's yeah. talk so about how this. How could Le Mans be? You yeah, know, how, I mean, hey. It's the championship in 95. <laughs> so yeah, let's go to Le Mans. You know? What was that thing that, was it Lord Heskus who said, if at first you don't succeed, try something harder? Well, we had succeeded. <laughs> so it was a no-brainer to try something harder. <laughs> so let's set things up, set the stage for you a little bit, Jeff. So if you happen to anyone happens to google uh results or entry list from le mans in 1996 you will search and keep searching for the name team scandia it's not there (laughs) um there's some interesting by way of other teams where a two-car ferrari uh 333 sp uh vehicles were were fashioned first one run under the racing for belgium team scandia so again not the standalone team scandia but in partnership uh 
that being three fine Belgian drivers, right, Jeff? Eric Van de Poel, Mark Goosens, yep. Eric Bachelard. If you're putting together yep. a triple yep. threat of Belgians, you kind of you kind of got them. Pretty stacked. Pretty and, stacked Belgians right there. And or then, not even Belgians, just sports car drivers. Yeah. That was a pretty pretty formidable uh, lineup, I thought. Look, you throw Van de Poel in anything, and that then you're you just look in your mirrors because the guy's uh, he's going to be there. And then the yep. only other tell. On the entry list, knowing that, again, Andy Evans, founder, owner, uh, financier, and whatnot of Team Scandia, the only other tell of where the effort you were looking after happened to be run was his name on the entry list with Rocket Sports. And for <laughs> those with in-depth knowledge of North American sports cars, Rocket Sports championship-winning Trans Am team with its owner and driver, Paul Genalozzi, uh also yep. IMSA success and right a lot of things there. Ran an Indy car for a little while. Indy car, yeah. And yep. if you look on that three driver rotation with that Ferrari three thirty three SP, you'll see Andy Evans, Fermin Valles, and as I recall, Jeff, I believe Paul Genalozzi was meant to drive. Might yep. might have um, might have reconfigured the car a little bit, leaving pit lane. If I remember, kind of dinged it up pretty good. And Ivan uh, uh, Mueller, phenomenal yeah. French driver. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. He's uh, you know, if you had to pick a guy, I don't know how we got Ivan as late as it was. Paul was supposed to drive, didn't work out. I think Paul might have wanted an extra year of practice before he went to Lamar yeah. after testing the car a little bit. And so it was entered as a rocket sports car months in advance. And, and then when Paul decided not to run or when it was mutually decided for him not to drive, somehow we snagged Yvonne Muller. I have, I mean, that doesn't happen in the, you know, at the, at the last minute, but uh, we got Yvonne and he was, you know, he was fantastic. So yeah, that, that rocket sports car was actually a full-blown Scandia car entered under the Rocket Sports name for Paul early on. And the Racing for Belgium uh, entry with Team Scandia added to uh, the end of the entry list there on that name. So setting the stage for your debut at Le Mans, having run countless cars at the Indy 500, Daytona 500, uh, roll what we call today the Rolex 24 at Daytona, Sebring. I mean, you had done yep. everything uh, in North America. This was Jeff Brown's first big uh, international travel for sports car racing. And the getting right. there. Why don't we open right. there, Jeff? The getting there? Oh, this well, this is a Andy yeah. Evans Team Scandia special. <laughs> yeah. Well, Andy, he didn't, you know, he was not that knowledgeable of racing i had never been to lama we didn't really have anybody within the team that would knew a lot about lama we knew we had as i remember somebody maybe we got somebody from another team or maybe it was through delara who built the 333 or tony southgate who designed it i can't remember but we had some buddy with French knowledge of the basics of Le Mans. But we didn't know, you know, we were an American team. We're going to go to France. Oh, they have a big race in France. Let's race that. Uh, Is our car legal? Yes. And I think that was the year, and I don't know all the details, but they allowed WSC cars, which were the the new um, 
technical regulations for basically a lot of the old closed cockpit prototypes. You chopped the roof off and magically you had a WSC car. So that was one of the, the ACO had allowed WSC cars to compete against LMP1, LM, LMGT1, which yeah. were like silhouette GT cars, LMP2, which were like light open cockpit prototypes. So like WSC was Ferrari 333s. Uh, the Riley and Scott Mark III was eligible for that. Um, in fact, the winning car ended up being a Porsche WSC car which was really a Jaguar XJR 14 yes. group C car that they chopped the top off and rebranded it as a Porsche. TWR so. Porsche WSC dash 96. Uh, yeah. also yeah. just by coincidence, you and your marauding American sports car team, uh, weren't able to win on debut, but we still look back Jeff, uh, all these years later in Davy Jones, last yeah. american to stand atop of the podium at le mans as the overall winner so oh that's it yeah i uh on the plane trip home from this race we i had the aisle seat davy jones winner of the r biggest sports car race in the world had the middle seat and we both slept on our trade tables all the way home <laughs> <laughs> So, was he uh, hugging was, his little trophy? Uh, uh, no, I didn't see any trophy. He was completely gassed. We had both been there for that's when Lamar was essentially a month. Yeah. He went there like for pre qualifying. I think it was really like three weeks ahead, but you didn't go home. You stayed there and worked on your car and maybe went testing and all that kind of stuff. So, I think we were both hammered, but yeah, it was cool to see Davey win. So in, in that car. So anyway, so Andy Evans goes, well, let's go do that race. And I'm like, heck yeah, let's go do Lamar. You know, we're pretty good at these cars. And so we didn't know exactly, and I don't know all the logistics, but ultimately instead of just sending the cars in like a shipping container, you know, a air freight container, like, the, like you'll see now at Sebring, you see all the containers come over with the cars and the parts and the tools and equipment. No, we didn't do that. We put two Kenworth 18 wheelers, the ones we took to the IMSA races. Full size tractor trailers. I'm good old American racing trailers big, with the 18 being pulled by an eight, uh, full tractor trailer, full tractor trailer. We put two of those in the cargo hold of a ship and shipped them to Lahar, France. <laughs> we didn't know. We thought, well, we got to get our stuff there. And then once it doesn't just show up at the track, you got to get to the port and then you got to drive it to Lamont. So we unloaded our, you know, off the ship. Boom, there's your, there's your truck and trailer. Our truck drivers got in and they started to drive and they got a, a little ways out of the port and, the police woo, stopped them and said, what are you doing? And they said, we're driving to Lama with our truck. <laughs> he said, not in this truck, you're not. And I don't know the details, but it was overweight, over length, over width, no permits, no nothing. And <laughs> so they had to, we, our team manager people and our French people, to whatever, pay fines, bribes, I don't know how it worked. But eventually, a, a day or two late, the truck and trailers rolled into Lamont. 
And it's only yeah. like two, two and a half hours if you're traveling in a in a street car from there. So, you know, yeah. tractor trailer might be three, three and a half if, if you got to do, you know, a bunch of weigh-ins and checks. But it, it definitely not two days. <laughs> not two days. Not two days. And it was, the roads were too narrow and some of the bridges, you know, you couldn't go over the bridges because the truck was too heavy. And uh, it was... And so me and the crew and the data guys and, you know, we're all at Lama in our garage with twiddling our thumbs, waiting for our stuff to show up. So then finally the stuff shows up and anybody who's been to Lama or seen the pictures, I think um, I can describe how it is, but there's the pit lane and then the garages are right next to the pit lane. So there's not like an American, you know, you don't have your tent and, and truck and trailer out the back you you have pit lane garages and then the truck backs up to the garage and so everybody backs their truck up to their garage space one truck per garage space or per entry so our two trucks back up and now we're in a hurry because we want to unload our stuff because we're a day behind or whatever two days so lift gates are going and the crew's getting stuff out the back of the truck and and as we're walking back and forth from garage to truck, we see like a huge crowd out, out by our truck and trailers and in, in the front of the truck area. And we're like, oh, yeah, these guys, they haven't seen a 333. That's, you know, this is like the million dollar sports car. It's made by Ferrari. You know, everybody wants to see the 333. They're just waiting for us to roll it on a lift gate and lower it back down and push it into the garage. And Super like, exotic cars that really made their name in America when they debuted in 1994. Here they are traveling yep. across the Atlantic Ocean to France. And and we walked out in front, and one of the crew guys goes, they don't care about the car. And I said, well, what the heck are they doing? And so we walked out in front of there, and there was a line of, maybe I'm exaggerating, but... 50 people waiting in line to stand in front of our Kenworth truck and get a picture of them standing in front of this monstrous American iron. That was the most coolest thing they had ever seen. Ferrari 333, nah. but this truck, that was special, man. We had to get a picture by this giant truck. And so that was kind of the, the introduction. We, you know, were like, okay, so maybe the car's not that cool the truck uh, looks pretty awesome i love that and just also yeah. you know, if, for those who haven't been to france or many places in europe one thing as americans we're accustomed to is seeing big old trucks everywhere ford f-150 most popular selling vehicle in america for a million years and suvs and big everything yep. you get to europe you quickly realize that take whatever you're used to seeing in terms of size of a vehicle and shrink it down by 25%, if not 50%. Everything is yep. just scaled down. Let me rephrase that because they've been around a lot longer than us. Uh, they're scaled perfectly fine. We in America, right. we're scaled, scaled up, up way <laughs> too much. And so right. this is effectively like bringing a monster truck to yep. the streets of places where the cars look like roller skates. And exactly. uh, so, yeah, uh, but that's so brilliant, Jeff. We brought all of our stuff and we, you know, we're, we're, we, you know, I won't say we were outwardly cocky, 
or big headed. We weren't, you know, we, this was a race. This is a hard race to win, but I think inwardly we're like pretty good. This, you know, it's just another long race. We should be okay. Right. So we go out for, I think if I remember right, I think the pre-qualifying may have been Saturday and Sunday back then. I think it's just Sunday now, but anyway, we roll out and we had been testing like crazy. I mean, we, we had Tony Southgate design a um, Le Mans kit for this car because it wasn't originally intended to be a Le Mans car. Slippery. So it was a, yeah, it was a higher downforce American track kind of, you know, to go against the big Riley and Scott Mark threes and stuff like that. So we've spent a lot of time at Delara, Paul Ricard in France testing months in advance, trying to get a Le Mans version of this car, you know, more aerodynamic. You had to go ridiculous 200 and I don't know, 30 on the Mulsanne to, to be competitive. And so we needed a car that would do that. So a lot of testing and all of that. So we didn't come in completely unprepared. We kind of knew what we were going to be up against and what we needed to do. Can we, so can we, we also just quickly, Jeff, mm-hmm. appreciate the, the resources and also the commitment of Andy Evans, because we're not, we're not talking about Jeff Brown, technical director of the Ferrari 333 SP V12 four liter F1 derived prototype factory program running out of Marinello. This is a private team in America that said, Hey, we're going to take these glorious, best sounding sports cars, prototypes, at least that we've heard in just about forever. And we're going to go to the world's biggest race, but this car was never designed for that. So we're going to commission and design our own special bodywork for this zillion dollar prototype on top of what it already costs. This is not a small undertaking. No, no, exactly right. And, and Andy paid for that all himself. <laughs> um, he, he owned the bodywork. He owned the design. He owned the molds. He owned... I mean, Ferrari built the motor and Renzo Setti was the, the engine guy. It was uh, an interesting story is that engine was kind of Renzo's engine in Formula One. He, he didn't design it, but he built it, tuned it, lived with it at the track every day. It was his baby to, to develop and nurture and take care of and all of that in the Formula One days. Well, when it got into the 333, it he he went with it and that was his engine and he you know he would come to all the races and everything well he had to develop a uh i don't know what different but running at lamar and going down you know the length of wide open throttle continuous wide open throttle the engine had to be changed differently and things like that so he had to change the engine and the mapping and the some internal components and the cooling and and then tony southgate the designer wanted smaller inlet ducts because less drag. So then the cooling changed and, and the wing position and how the wing interacted with the rear diffuser. And it was a big, big project. Um, you know, we just didn't take our car and just drop it in there and, and go, we knew it was going to be a lot involved. And Porsche had announced that they were going to build their GT1 car, they called it, which was, in a sense, a 
prototype. It was a silhouette GT car. It was a prototype with a GT silhouette body on it that kind of made it look like a 911. If you really yeah. squinted, you could see some 911 to it. So, you know, and that was factory. That was factory Porsche, Porsche AG, not Yoast, not, you know, any of those guys. That was the factory. So we were going to have to race against those guys. McLaren brought out their GTR um, to race it in that same class. And so there was some pretty stiff competition that we were going up against. And, and Andy, you know, he didn't like losing. And he was like, hey, if we're going to do this, we got to do it right. And there was a lot of time and effort and testing put into it. So, so when we unloaded the thing, we went out for the first couple of days of practice and we were fast. I mean, oh, we were, uh, somebody could probably look up the results and I might have this wrong in, in detail, but in general, we were the guys to beat. Our two Ferraris were like, we were, and so we were pretty proud of ourselves, like, wow, okay, you know, unload here. We're the fastest guys. This is great. We thought that was really smart and really good. And we kept on tuning and trying this and trying that and going a little faster and a little faster and a little faster each session and each day. And we got our tune right in. So we were really fast, which was like ultimately the dumbest thing we could have ever done. Oh. <laughs> But we didn't know. We were stupid. We we didn't know how this game is played at all. And so we're we're really fast three weeks before the race. And Porsche with their factory Porsches, they were not very fast and they were seemed to be struggling and and uh, they were always complaining to the technical guys and the ACOR car's slow and it eats up tires and it burns a lot of gas and and we're like thinking oh, this is great. Their car eats up tires, burns gas, and it's slow. Perfect. We're in, you know, we got them where we, right where we want them. Again, we had no clue. We didn't know how this game is played. Porsche plays this game better than anybody. So, again, we didn't know, so we just kept on trying to make our cars faster. And we we were pretty, pretty stoked about our chances once the race actually got there we qualifying i don't think we actually got pole and i don't remember how all that worked we were really fast though in practice and we were in the top three i think and so we thought we were you know we thought we were doing pretty good um had all the parts we needed had all the support we needed had everything we were looking we were pretty pumped going into this race you know, obviously anything can happen in a 24 hour race, but we were, we were looking pretty good. And then it kind of all went sideways. Once the green flag flew, <laughs> it was, it was, I, I got a couple stories. Yeah. How should I start? I, I could start with actually this, the more I think about all these stories, it's explaining how inexperienced and unsmart and dumb I was, but, but it's, that's happened many times. So Says the guy much. going there for the first time 
who's uh, <laughs> overseen complete new bodywork development, spent, well, how long was it Monza or Paul Ricard? I forget where, but uh, where you said, but pounding around forever, trying to learn all of these things. And this is long before uh, uh, driver in the loop simulators, CF, yeah. CFD leading everything, computer sim to lead you towards all the right answers. So, I mean, you know, let, let, let's take yourself uh, off the, the, the dumb guy list here. I, I think you're... Oh, okay. I'll tell a couple more stories and you see if you still agree. Oh, no. Oh, might, no. Might not. What did it I just do? <laughs> it gets worse. So, anyway, we start the race in the first couple rows and, you know, we know that you don't have to go out and go super... It's a 24-hour race, right? So, you... you you got to be uh, consistent and good and let the race kind of play out. So Andy Evans is in starting his car. The I think it was technically the Rocket Sports car. So he starts his car. And green flag, you go around, you go down the Mulsanne, <clears throat> and you get to Mulsanne Corner, which um, if people don't know, it's like the super sharp right-hander, 35-mile-an-hour corner at the end of the Mulsanne straight. And, and it's like you're breaking from 200 plus down to 35 miles an hour. So Andy's going down there on the first lap. We haven't even made a lap yet. We're half a lap into this race. And he looks over and there's a guy in a McLaren right next to him at top speed. And Andy decides he's going to outbreak this guy into Mulsanne. And he decides the way he's going to do it is he's going to wait until that guy breaks and then break just after him. And he, that guy breaks, Andy breaks, and he goes straight off into the gravel, stuck, buried in the gravel on half a lap into the 24 hours of Le Mans with the Ferrari. And they, I can't remember, I don't know if he got out. Anyway, he got dug out. And there's some very technical rules at Lamar about uh, assistance and stuff like that. But we somehow got our, we, we complied with those rules and we got the car out by ourselves back onto the tarmac. Andy drove it back, rocks spewing every place, rocks jammed in the brake rotors and calipers and, and grinding. And, uh, and he got back to the garage, came in the garage. We put it in the garage. Again, now we're about now 15 minutes into the 24 hours of Le Mans. <sighs> Things in the garage, guys got the wheels off, calipers off, brake rotors off, trying to dig the rocks out of every place. You know, un had to take the floor off because rocks had gotten in the floor, which can get up in the belts and all of that kind of stuff. So, I mean, we had to basically take this car apart. And I'm standing there talking to Andy while all the guys are thrashing, trying to get this thing going. And I, I'm like, what happened to Andy? He's like, well, you know, I was going to outbreak this guy. And I said, you know who that guy was? And he goes, yeah. I said, so you knew that was Nelson PK you were trying to outbreak. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, that's why I wanted to outbreak him. Formula One guy. <laughs> I'm going to outbreak Nelson PK. And I said, cool, good. I like your, you know, your aggression and stuff. You do also know that the McLaren has carbon brakes 
and the 333 has steel brakes. Oh, I didn't know that. I'm like, so you're going to try to outbrake Nelson Piquet with carbon brakes in a steel brake car? In a yeah, no, that was that was never going to happen, was it? I said no, it was never going to happen. This amazing McLaren F1, yeah, GTR. Uh, yep. Oh, no. Yep. With Nelson Piquet driving it, so that's how the race started, and it, it, I'll actually finish with the story with that car. So we were down, I don't know, an hour. And so, uh, you know, we weren't going to win that race. And we went around and around and around. And halfway maybe through the race, I and I don't know for sure what happened here, but we had no telemetry. I mean, nobody had telemetry. It just wasn't a thing back in 1996. Maybe the Porsche team did, but we certainly didn't, and I don't think many teams did. So we had a fuel counter that counted like liters used. And every time we had a little chart in the car that if it was, if the fuel reading was below a certain number, it, you looked up on the chart as you got to the Ford chicane area right before the pits, you know, just out of the Porsche curves. And you looked at your chart and went, oh, eight, I have eight liters left. I can go one more lap or I have seven liters left, I have to pit now. You know, it was one of the kind of those go, no-go things that the, that the driver decided. And so, because we couldn't rely on radio communication in the Porsche curve that wasn't so good. So the driver made that call. Well, we were hours down and it, I don't think Andy was having a whole lot of fun. And uh, I'm not gonna say for sure that he ran it out of gas on purpose, but it was a convenient way to stop the misery and just not have to do this anymore because we were going to be have a horrible finish. We ran out of gas basically um, in the Porsche curves, and then you, if you get outside assistance of like a gas can, you know, a dump bottle yeah. or something, you're immediate you're immediately disqualified. And Andy's on the radio. He goes, "I'm out of gas. I'm out of gas. Uh, bring somebody with a five gallon can." And I'm like. Uh, we can't do that. We're going to be disqualified. He goes, I don't care. Bring me a five-gallon can. So we put a five-gallon can in it, went back to the pits. We're immediately disqualified. That car was done. <laughs> well, um, yeah. Uh, so for those who might be Googling uh, what we're talking about, if you do indeed look at the results of the 1996, 24 Hours of Le Mans, um, yeah, how'd we do? Well, in position DNF number one, there <laughs> is the number 18 Rocket Sports Incorporated WSC entry of uh, Andy Evans, Yvonne Mueller, and Fermin Valles. Uh, that oh, Ferrari 333 SP completed 31 laps. 31. So okay. first yep. car all that way in your uh, uh, ship bound monster truck tractor trailer and whatnot uh for 31 laps and a team owner who bless him uh didn't want to hear it and um right. uh, but but we had our we had our other car we had you our did for belgium car and so so we were like okay yeah okay we got this you know we got three really good drivers in there not that we didn't i mean velez was yeah i mean star I mean, was yeah, I mean, beloved. One of my 
best friends in racing ever. And I can miss tell him. Fermin's stories forever. But miss him so, so Fermin was really good. Yeah, me too. Him and Muller were good. Andy Evans was, by today's standards, or, you know, bronze rated, silver rated, all that kind of stuff. Andy Evans would have been one of the top bronze rated drivers in the world. Gentleman the driver, uh, but yep. not a gentleman driver to dismiss. No, think of, you know, Ben Keating, Stephen Thomas, uh, pick your prototype guy, John Bennett, you know, highest level gentleman driver, Andy Evans was. So anyway, we had our Belgian car, and so I devoted most of my attention to that. And we're like, okay, well, we got the fastest car. We've been, you know, we can win this. We're, we're going we're gonna to probably win this race. We have the fastest car, demonstrated it through the last three weeks. Let's let's do this. So we come in for our first pit stop, and I'm making these numbers up because I don't remember the exact number of laps, but I think it was like 11 laps. We could go 11 laps on a tank of gas. So we go around 11 laps, and we come into the pits, and we fill it with gas, and we put a new set of Pirelli tires on it. We were running uh, – Pirellis because we had in America and we had a good relationship with those guys. So we put our Pirelli tires on it and went back out and we were watching the Porsches and the, the factory Porsches mainly. And they go, they didn't stop with us and we're like, okay, well, they'll be in the next lap. So they go by lap 12. They don't pit lap 13. They don't pit lap 14. They don't pit. And they're in on lap 15, four laps longer than us. And I'm like, ooh, that's probably not good. And as is still the case at Le Mans, you can't do gas, fuel, and tires at the same time. They have to do them separate. So they put their fuel in, pull out, the fueler pulls out, and they leave. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. They didn't even change tires. So they went four laps longer than us, and their pit stop was 30 seconds quicker because they didn't change the Michelin tires. Huh, that's probably not good. Yeah. So I don't have my computer strategy program back in the day. There, uh, you know, it was not like now where I could have just typed a, bu- a couple keys and got the answer. So I'm, I got my piece of paper and my kind of like spreadsheet on graph paper kind of thing and a calculator and quickly I'm typing and I'm and after about a minute and a half, I'm like, uh, yeah, we can't win this race. I don't care. You know, the fact that we're two, three, maybe four seconds faster than them, we still lose. And Andy Evans now is standing there next to me because his car's out of the race. And I went to Andy and I said, uh, Andy, I got some bad news. He goes, yeah, I know that car's out of the race. I said, no, worse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the other car that's running and is running second right now, we can't win this race. Uh, what do you mean? You know, we have the fastest car. And I showed him my math and he's like, oh, yeah, we're not going to win, are we? And I said, no, not a chance in the world. Can we win this race? No way. It just, we're going to have to, and again, I don't know the numbers, but we're going to stop six more pit stops than them. Than them and each one of those is going to be um, 30 seconds longer than them. It's just, there's no way. And they didn't have, 
yellow flags and wave buys and pass arounds and lucky dogs or any of that stuff. They're doing just, the 24 hours of Lamont. We're doing the 25 hours of Lamont. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. And so it was a little demoralizing an hour into the race. One car's out or two hours in. One car's out and the other car has no chance. And we that's when I realized how good Porsche was at playing the game. To, nowadays we call it BOP. But what they did was just they didn't go as fast as they could in the practice three weeks before. They didn't run all their gas and show that they could go 15 laps. They Michelin didn't say, oh, yeah, our tires will triple stint. No, they were like, oh, our tires are wearing out pretty fast. And the ACO gave them more gas, more power, and Michelin had stints in, in hand that they didn't show. And when it came to actually racing, they just did their thing like Porsche normally does, and boom, they probably were laughing their you-know-what-off in their garage at those dumb Americans with those red Ferraris. <laughs> going super, played- sh- going blazingly fast on the, uh, the test day and pre-qualifying, <clears throat> thinking that you had everybody covered by a mile, and then... Yep. As uh, as you learn, getting getting into the race very early, oh, uh, this is before what we have today is what we know today in its fullest form of balance of performance. But this was uh, the roots of balance of performance of trying to not show all of your cards. Lobby, oh my gosh, you know, right. even if the car is capable of outrunning everybody. Not only do you not show that full speed on track, but you also complain like mad that you're being murdered and you may as well just go home because there's no reason to race because uh, you need right. breaks here and there. I mean, as right. as you're saying, there was a bit of a, a factory-level master class of, politi- of, of politicking well before the race ever started. Yeah, the, and the, their masters at it, and to this day, their masters at it, and you know, and they stacked the deck with guys like, uh, you know, one of those cars had Hans Stuck, Terry Bootson, and Bob Wallach. The other one, <laughs> Wedling, Wedlinger, Dalmas, and Scott Goodyear. It's like, all right, well, that's what Porsche does. And if we were smarter, we would have known, wait a minute, those guys in that factory do not just get hammered by some privateer Ferrari team from Washington doesn't, it doesn't happen, but, and it didn't, they, you know, we didn't, we didn't win. Ultimately what happened, we broke a gearbox, changed the gearbox, not in four minutes or whatever, like the Audis could do ultimately, but it took us 40 minutes, but changed the gearbox and then um, basically destroyed the car in the Dunlop chicane broke it in half, actually, broke the car, broke the engine and gearbox off the back of the car in a big crash with um, Eric Bachelard in the Dunlop chicane, and that was the end of it. He was okay, luckily. <laughs> yes. So we've got so. one car disqualified. We've got another yep. car snapped in half. Right. And, <laughs> I mean, if we're talking about Welcome to Lamar, son. Uh, right. The, these were the endurance racing gods of the European variety. 
you obviously already having had amazing success at home in North America, but this was a uh, bit of a slap of reality. Granted, you obviously took everything you learned and did as you always do and put that to great use coming back the second time. But I'm guessing there had to be a, a bit of a feeling, Jeff, of like, wow, from from the heights of potential, right? No one could catch us. But that really was the least of the things to focus on to, uh, yeah, this had to be a bit of a, a punch to the unpleasant areas of the body. Yeah, yeah, it was um, it was humbling. Is that I think that's the word that a lot of people use. We again, I don't want people to think that we were outwardly cocky, like you know, acting like you know, like those uh, I don't know Americans who got this and how hard can it be? And the, you know, the Americans that people don't don't like. We we were inwardly very confident because we thought we knew what we were doing. And we even talked about, do we really know what we're doing? Is this, do we, you know, do we belong here? So we thought, and we spent a lot of money and time and effort and good drivers. And we we thought we checked all the boxes, but I think the lesson that I learned from that was that, even when you think you have checked all the boxes and you got everything settled and sorted and there can be nothing that you've overlooked, there probably is something that you've overlooked. And that's, you know, that was that, that was a pretty good lesson for, I think for all of us. And we didn't go back with, uh, um, 333s again. They, they raced again. Um, I think Moretti took one back there and um like dams or somebody maybe i forget that's the gst anyways yeah i i I do recall seeing them but i'm i'm probably forgetting the proper team names yeah i think moretti maybe took two yeah i can't remember but yeah they went back we didn't with scandia we we were that that next year is when we did uh cart or maybe it was this year. I don't know. We did CART, IRL, Top Fuel, ARCA, WEC. We must have done something else. No, I think those are the. I think we did those. So offshore powerboats, so, submarine <laughs> racing. Uh, yeah, we didn't try that. Went but, to the moon. Right. We did. Yeah. So anyway, we got busy doing that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, that was that was quite an interesting. That was an interesting project, and and then. For me, I didn't go back until I went back to Lamar. Um, I really wasn't involved. I, uh, Colin did a race with Reese, where he finished second in GT. They didn't have AM and GTLM and Pro and AM and all that. They just had GT. And he finished second there as an 18-year-old. I, I, I wasn't really involved there helped a little on strategy but that was that was totally rick mayer and reese's program and they did that and then i went back with level five a couple times which um in lmp2 which was not as far as funding and doing it the right way it was not unlike the whole scandia trips you have <laughs> you have a knack for finding folks captains of industry amazingly wealthy 
etc etc like uh, granted i know that <laughs> the the roots of your career obviously with uh alan kowicki and such a lot of that was done on you know bubble gum and pocket change but uh yeah. and you know back in your uh uh your your camel lights days and such running your own program there i mean right you you certainly have had to do things uh, in a very budget-minded way before but man you also had a pretty amazing run of like wow that person's worth nine uh nine figures or ten figures or a right. hundred figures let's go right. play sports cars or whatever else just uh phenomenal yeah i've been been lucky um to have been given the opportunity to have world-class drivers world-class mechanics you know budgets that i that there was i wasn't lacking for a budget to do what we what we needed to do the scary part about those oh, oh, for me though was that there were absolutely no excuses you know i couldn't go to the team owner and say ah oh, sorry we finished second if, if if we could have tested for an extra day i think we could have got it better because i could test for an extra day test as much as you want just tell me you know you need more tires you need more people you need better people you need different people just tell me we'll get it so there were there were no excuses for not getting the results that those people demanded and those kind of guys and you know the, there's a lot of you know look down in imsa or the lama entry list for non-factory operations and i guarantee you there's a guy like that behind every one of those and they were successful in their chosen business enough to be able to afford to race those cars at those levels so they are highly competitive people and they don't want to lose and you know if they give you all the tools you got to deliver no pressure that's why i liked working for small to medium-sized teams you know <laughs> expectations yep. were kind of like myself middle of the road uh hey you finished 12th woohoo yeah oh, thank god good job yeah <laughs> good job. yeah well, yeah, those anyway, yeah, lots of I, I, I'm not going to Lamar this year. Um, I'm, I'm sending a family member there to take care of that. Colin will be in the Algarve Pro Car, um, in LMP2. So, uh, I, I get to, you know, I have a dog in the fight, as they say. So, that'll be fun to watch how that goes. And I can't wait to see how the whole hypercar gtp thing works out we saw a little taste of that at sebring it'll be interesting to see how that works out at lamar and what you know can a can a gtp gtp car win i don't know yeah. it'll be fun to see it's going to be interesting you're going to have a blast there marshall i look fun. forward to it i just hope and pray it's not the 24 hours of toyota again five in a row with no real competition first time uh they've had competition uh in it since porsche pulled out with a 919 hybrid uh so yeah happy so thankful that we have yep. cadillacs and peugeots and all kinds of fun stuff to uh to give yep. give them some grief and if they win i won't be surprised but at least like that we aren't going into the centenary race, Jeff, knowing the overall winner before it started. So uh, thankful I'm, for that. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. And if people 
are going to watch that. Obviously, the hypercar GTP uh, class is going to be the the marquee thing. But don't get don't don't forget LMP2. There's like 28 of them, and for people that complain about BOP and oh, I don't like BOP and that car's got an advantage and that one doesn't and da 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 da. LMP2 is now essentially, actually, you'd have to check the entry list, but I believe it is 100% Orica yep. 07s yep. on Goodyear on Goodyear tires with the same engine. There is no BOP. Everybody has equal. It all comes down to setup, strategy, and driving. So if you hate BOP, watch LMP2 is your class. That's going to be fantastic because it's – you know, there's nobody has a mechanical or performance or technical advantage over the other team. So if they're quicker, it's because they're driving it better, called better strategy or set it up better, which I think is that's pretty cool. Brother, thank you for spending some time here. Thanks again to our partners at Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers and TorontoMotorsports.com. And can't wait to uh, get there and see what this year's race unfolds. Sounds, sounds great. Have fun. I appreciate it, Marshall. Thanks for having me.